we're looking at a text that the Apostle Paul basically started to answer a question in chapter 8, verse 1. Things offered to idols. What should I do with it? And if you look at 8 through 11, you're going to look at what Paul is dealing with is what I call uh, our freedom. What do I do for our freedom? There are areas in our lives today that um, the Bible doesn't say yes or no. Um, We would like to call it a gray area. I would call it a non-commented area. So how do I deal with it? Uh, And I mean, it deals with everything. Uh, In the Russian church, women, all women wear dresses on Sunday. Anytime the church gathers together to worship, they wear dresses. That is what they are taught. That's what they demand. All right, And they do it with submission. It's not done because uh, I have to. It is done because the authorities that are over us do this. I could care less. What does the Bible say about a woman wearing dresses? Well, it says a woman's supposed to be adorned. Let me explain something to you. At the writing of the New Testament, men wore dresses. All right, so you really want to press that one. Knock yourselves out. I'm not wearing a dress. Okay, you can call me rebellious. You can call me a sinner, whatever you want to call me. I'm not wearing a dress. All right, it's just just a thing, a a phobia thing I've got. But see, we get into these kind of things. I, I hear people deal with this a lot. We have things, we have issues, we have burdens that sometimes people want to pile up on our backs and say, I want you to carry this. So we as Christians, how do I decide what is right and wrong? If it's, the Bible doesn't speak of it. Um, in Russia, um, they have a very high uh, mortality rate of cancer. And the reason is everybody smokes. Everybody. I mean, you can buy cigarette, tobacco products, I should say, at 14. You can buy liquor at 14. And I mean all of it. You can buy it at 14. And so when it comes to alcohol and tobacco, the Russian church teaches that both are sinful. All right? You know, and they would say, well, you know, the body is the temple of the living God and da-da-da and all that other stuff. Be careful. Be careful because you start going down that road, then you have just outlawed number four supersized. All right, because you don't want to be eating that fatty food now, do you? Well, you may not. I do, but I get, I've been eating it up since I got back because I'm tired of carrots and potatoes. Uh, but it's stuff like that. You be real careful about what burden you're willing to pile on somebody's shoulders. All right, because he starts here in chapter in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And that's what he's kind of dealing with. We've looked at the Lord's table. But see, he's, he uses the Lord's table as an illustration because you are in union with God at the Lord's table. I thought about that a couple weeks ago. We were partaking of the Lord's table the same time you were. Actually, we were about 12 hours earlier. Uh, but we partook of the Lord's table. There, they have uh, a common cup. I've never experienced a common cup. When I found out it was a common cup, I just had some misgivings. But you know what? I praise God. Remember I told you he went before me, right? He went before me. Being I was a guest, I got the cup first. (laughs) And I was, hallelujah, brother. (laughs) This backwash is for you in love. But it's, it's stuff like that that when we step into these things, we... All I could think about was that you guys were going to be taking of the Lord's table 
the same day I was going to take in the Lord's table. And I knew that there was a unity, though I was on the other side of the planet, that there was a unity that I had with you even being gone and with these precious saints that I was with in their church in Orel. He uses that as an illustration because he wants you to understand where you are, who you are, and who, who owns you. That it, it isn't a symbol. Please understand, the Lord's table is not a symbol. It's a reality. You are a partaker in him. Um, he has shared with us in the conclusion of chapter 9 that he says, I buffet my body. I beat my body into submission that it is submitted to me. Why? That I'm not disqualified, that I am not useless. And then he uses Israel as an illustration. He uses Israel's turning their back on God over and over again into idolatry, into this, into that. You name it, they grab the hold of it. And he says, we have been given Israel as an illustration. We have been given Israel as a picture of what not to do on occasions. Now Paul summarizes that. In verse 23, please understand, he's not concluded this. What he's dealing with, a Christian's freedom, he doesn't stop until the end of chapter 12. Please understand that. All right, because there's some texts that are coming up that get a lot of people in a lot of trouble. And the reason is they don't study the first eight chapters, first nine chapters, first ten chapters. Remember, this church was having some problems. This church was struggling. They had sin. This church's biggest single problem was the fact that people were getting saved from a lost society and they were bringing in all their habits, all their understanding, everything that they've ever done, they were bringing it in and trying to enmesh it in the things of God, trying to make it look the same. Well, I'm just going to add God to my life. That's what the church in America is in right now. We don't go to Christ and say you and you alone we just want to add you to our life this section that we are getting ready to look at contains one of the most important most essential statements in all of holy scripture okay and that's what I want to sort of deal with today we're not really going to get into your outline but I want to lay a foundation that in the weeks to come that I can deal with this in this outline. Because there's something in this text that many of us have read, many of us have quoted, many have even perverted it, many have used it as the shield, we have used it for validating things that we want or wish or desire. And so I want to look at it. It's verse 31, the second half of it. Because the second half of it is almost a summary statement, but it's almost the, the emphasis the Apostle Paul is bringing. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Got that? Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The song Stephanie sang, touch not the glory, touch not the glory. How many in Christendom this day are touching the glory? We have a very small church, a very small church. And yet God has done some amazing things. Do you know that I preached in a church in London, England while I was gone? That's older than America. I preached in a church that a guy named Prince James attended in the 1500s. Went down on the altar where he would, where he, uh, would have his own quiet devotions because he was royalty. 
Why? Why did God say, Terry, I want you to preach here? I can't take any credit for it. I was just, what a gloomy city. <laughs> That's, that was the thing that kept bothering me. And then they had uh, what they call a high pulpit. And it's, you walk a spiral staircase up the back and you, you look down on everybody. I mean, literally, I mean, people on the front row are doing this. And I, I, they didn't have a microphone. And I thought, I'm going to have to scream to get this thing to work and this is going to be tragic. I opened my mouth and that cathedral ceiling... That whole east end of London heard what I preached. I mean, I know why they had stained glass. They were trying to hold in some of the sound. I was like, it was incredible. It was almost like it was coming back at me. Um, holy, holy, holy. You heard that song? They had a pipe organ in the back that filled the whole back balcony. And when that bugger got going, I, I thought, we're out of here. Jesus is coming back and one ain't, hark that herald angel is playing the organ instead of the trumpet. Uh, but uh, why? Why was I there? I mean, all I could think of is, why am I here? Why me, Father? I, I don't understand this. The guy I was teaching with has a Ph.D. in ministry, and he's working on his Ph.D. in theology. Okay? And I kept thinking, well, why, why am I with him? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he's, he pronounces words. I don't even know what they mean. And that was in the English. And I was, Whatever. But in Russia, you know, it all comes out the same with an interpreter. You don't really know what he just said. Okay? Why? When we look at our lives, we have a problem. This verse encompasses everything else and all of Scripture has to say. Okay? It brings all of Scripture into one statement. And you and I have a problem in our lives. Because there's only two things you can do. You either glorify God, we would like to say, or we don't, right? That's not true. You either glorify God or you are a reproach to God. You profane God. See, we have a problem. We like to say, well, I'm just not glorifying God. Is that unglorifying God? Have you ever thought about that? What you do every moment, what does it do? Bottom line of the Christian life, that's the basic meaning of life. Whatever you do, what? Glorify God. I remember reading uh, Barnes' notes on his commentary on uh, the book of Romans. Right there where he deals with what Tom taught on while I was gone, that the sin, the nature of sin. And Barnes, one of his concluding summaries of that text was this, and I quote, You will glorify him through your redemption or through your ruin. Unquote. Um. Here's the thing. Whatever happened, God's going to get the glory. I don't know that you can make a a greater general statement. That song, Touch Not the Glory, that is a tendency that exists today. 
We have a tendency to want to touch the glory. We want a tendency to copyright our ministry. We have a tendency to mass produce our publications. We have a tendency to take credit for what God has done. And what is amazing to me, most of these people will say, but God did it. I was thinking about one book in particular. I won't mention it, but if you go through his study book, he will say, will you covenant with me to accomplish this book? Whose glory? Whose glory? See, you have two things that an individual can do in your life. Did you know that? Two things. You know, we always talk about decisions. At any given moment, at any given point, at any given day, there's two things that you can decide. To glorify God or to be a reproach to God. And I know some of you will say, well, is it really that simple? Well, God created us, and I'm pretty sure he's convinced that we need to keep it simple because we have a tendency to complicate things, don't we? And that's what we deal with. I like it. We want to make it more complicated. Truth of the matter is, when I make decisions, I come down to two things. Will it glorify God or will it be a reproach to God? An unbeliever lives in, uh, has a life that is a continual life that is a reproach to God. Tom taught on this. It's continual. You know, I've heard people talk about, well, are they divorced? Are they drunk? Are they this? Are they that? Let me tell you something. You could be a moral person and not bow to Jesus Christ, and you are a reproach to God because your life says, I'm good enough to get into heaven because I didn't do anything bad. They ignore God, and they will trade Him for creature rather than create her. They dishonor God. A believer glorifies God, but guess what? Sometimes, and you use the Israel illustration that we've seen in chapter 10, sometimes we can be a reproach to God. For a saint, we have two abilities, two capacities, to dishonor Him or to glorify Him. So what I wanted to look at this morning, what does this mean? When it says here, do everything to the glory of God, what does it mean? What's he telling me? What does it mean to glorify God? And what, here's the way I think, what does it mean to dishonor God? Because if I understand what that means, then I will know what it means to obey God. So taking Paul's cue, speaking of Israel, I want to use Israel as an illustration. All right, and I want to start in a prophetic book. Um, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. This is a prophetic chapter. If you know anything about it, I'm not going to get into a lot of prophecy or whatever, but if you look at the Old Testament prophets, they have what they call a near-far prophecies. I prophesy something that has actually a, 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 a future characteristic to it, but it'll have a present application because of something that's going to happen. Ezekiel is prophesying to Israel. The kingdom is split into two, the northern and the southern. You have Israel in the north, and you have the tribe of Benjamin and Judah in the south. 
Okay, Ezekiel is prophesying to Israel. And he's telling them that God's getting ready to judge you. To judge you. He's going to bring, but he wants them to understand that when he does this, he does plan on bringing them into a land. And he will establish them as a people. But there is a judgment that is coming. Verse 18 says, Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Okay? Israel had literally stepped into small sects, had stepped into human sacrifice. They were offering their children to Moloch. Human sacrifice. They were killing the children of Israel because of idolatry. Verse 19 says... Also, I'll scatter them among the nations. They are dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judge them. Why? Now, listen, you, you think about that. You, you're, you're, they've got idols going on. They're offering up in small pockets their children to this God, this deity. And they're shedding innocent blood. And here's what he says. Verse 20. Then they came to the nations where they went, meaning as Israel, that's the northern ten tribes, as they were all traveling around, as they went, they did what? They profaned my name. Because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come to... They have come out of His land. They have left. If their God is so powerful, why'd they leave? Not only that, he's talking about the Assyrian captivity. He's saying, if their God is so powerful, how's come we whooped them? See, Gentiles in this time believed in what they call local deities. If you lived in a certain place, you had a little God who kind of took care of you. And if your God was powerful, then nobody could overthrow your country. If your God took a vacation or something like that, went, took a nap, wasn't around, and we conquered you, we could prove that your God really wasn't that important. Okay? Sounds right? Well, Assyria is getting ready to clobber Israel, and they're saying, how tough is your God? Our God is bigger than your God because our God beat up your God or we wouldn't be able to conquer you. It's an interesting statement because he says here, I have put them into captivity. Why? I have poured my wrath out on them. I will scatter them. And he did. God reminded them of their history. He reminded them, there have been times that I scattered you. And yet because of skin, because of your sin, you're not hearing it and I'm going to do it again. There will be a people without a land. This is part of that, what is known as the time of the Gentiles, beginning in 586 B.C. It was the destruction of Jerusalem, the hauling away of Israel. Uh, Israel was scattered throughout the world. And at this point in history, they were trying to get regathered. You know why? They profaned his name. They profane God's name. God says, I, when I scatter you, you dishonor, you unglorify my name. You literally have brought evil upon my name. But look at something that's interesting here. Look at verse 21. An interesting statement. But I had concern for my holy name. I had compassion for what? 
What do you have compassion for? His holy name. What about his people? But I thought God was a God of love. I thought he was a God of grace, a God of mercy. He is. He is. Don't ever kid yourself. Absolutely, don't ever kid yourself. But let me give you something else that sometimes we tend to forget. He is also a God of justice. He is also a God who will not have his name profaned. The nation of Israel had brought what I call bad press on God's name. Now you say, well, I don't do that. Really? When 9-11 happened, why did I hear through Christendom, why did God allow this to happen? I was up at Columbine at the day of the shooting. And that was the thing that I kept hearing over and over from everybody. Why did God allow this to happen? Very simple. You've profaned his name. And his justice sin will be dealt with. Period. Gentiles say, boy, that God down there in Israel, he's over Israel. He's some kind of weakling. Look at his people. He can't even keep them in their land. They assumed that Jehovah God of Israel was just another local deity that had taken a break or maybe wasn't as powerful as they thought. But I want to show you something else here. End of verse 21. Concern for my name, compassion for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Where they went. You know what is amazing about that statement? God just really doesn't like that, does he? See, he says, I have a concern. And my concern is not this people. My concern is my name. See, my name, the name is all that that he is. The concern for his name, which the house of Israel had profaned, and they had done it among the nations. Look at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Why? I am going to do something here, and it's not because of you. It is because of what? Because of my holy name. Do you know what he's getting ready to do? Look at verse 22. Verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know... I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from the lands, and bring you into your own lands. You know what he's getting ready to do? He's going to bring them back. He's going to reestablish the nation of Israel. Why? I thought they profaned his name. They did, but they're also saying that by their destruction, by their defeat, by what has happened to them, how strong is their God? And he says, I will bring you back. How strong is their God? In 70 AD, Israel ceased to exist. It was a non-existent country. In 1948, 
it came back. You know, in the history of humanity, that's never happened. The reestablishing of a nation, not a nation that has been completely obliterated. There was nothing there. And he says, it's not for your sake, it is for my name's sake. Israel had brought upon God bad press. Bad press. They profaned his name. He was a reproach because of their sin. God had chastened them. God had put them into bondage, put them into captivity because of what they had done wrong. Their lives had become miserable. And the rest of the world thought their God must be powerless. Why? Look at them. They're miserable. Did you hear what I said? The rest of the world would say, why would I want to serve your God? Look how cranky you are. Nothing goes right for you. You walk around like mm, mad all the time, sad. You're just droopy. You look pitiful, pathetic. Why would I want to do anything with a God like your God? Why? Because you have profaned the name of God. I want you to think about something with me. I've made this statement before. I want you to think with me again. If God never gave you anything, never ever gave you anything except eternal life, How happy would you be? How happy would you be? I mean, if God said, I'm not giving you anything, all you're going to have, all I'm only, the only thing I can give you, the only thing I want to give you is eternal life. That's it. I got no more packages. The God Santa's clause has but one gift. How would you feel? How would you feel? While I was gone to uh, Russia, uh, my stepfather became gravely ill and was hospitalized. I didn't believe he's going to survive. He's still kind of clinging to life. But his desire and my mom's desire is that uh, it's better to go on and be with Christ. Hey, my desire is that he stays, and here's my reasoning. He's a prayer warrior. He's not a guy who prays. He's a person who wrestles with principalities and powers and the intervention of the saints. And he does not quit knocking on God's door until there's a resolution to whatever it is he's petitioning. I don't think the church can afford the loss of too many more of those. But my parents' hope isn't here. It's not in the grandkids. I know it's not in her two sons. I just know that. Their hope is in the Lord. Because why? The one gift that they cherish the most is what? Eternal life. You know what's bizarre about that, Christian? Ephesians says you have only been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Peter says, you know what? I'm going to just give you, God's just going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. That's all. And yet, have you looked at some of the saints of God? See, sin is not only evil in and of itself, but it compels God to do what men are bound to misunderstand. Do you understand what I said? God is just. 
And if you are in habitual sin, God is bound to have to deal with you. Isn't he? If he isn't, then he denies his character. And I'm thinking that he can't do that. So he has to deal with sin. And yet, if he deals with sin in a believer's life, what does the rest of the world see? Have you ever read the book of Job? You know, one time in my life, I almost thought about teaching that book, and I thought, what was I thinking? Because God will give you what you're preparing for, and I said, I don't need to teach Job. Okay? I just, Lord, I, I can't go through that because I'm not prepared. There you go. Um, the first and last chapter is the only thing that means anything. The rest of it is the minutia of man. Job, what have you done wrong? You need to repent, Job. It's obvious. Look at you. He's taking everything with you away from you except that woman, your wife. What is your conclusion? The Pharisees did this to Jesus. Why was this guy born blind? Did his parents sin or did he sin? What was Jesus' response? Neither. It is for God's glory at this moment that I can heal him. But there is a chastening that comes to sin. You say God is a God of love. You say God is a God of grace. You say, how can it be if I look around the world and see all this stuff? Have you ever heard that? How can God be so powerful when there's tsunamis? How can God be so powerful when there's earthquakes? How can God be so powerful if AIDS is go, uh, growing in, uh, in Africa? How can God be so powerful if we have heart attacks, if we have cancer? How can your God be so powerful if all of this is happening? It's very simple. He's so powerful that he wields justice just like he does everything else. And sometimes he wields justice through earthquakes, through tsunamis, through hurricanes, through AIDS. Let's be realistic about it. What did it take to get most of us saved? Most of it was a cataclysmic event. Something had to crush us to say, oh, I'm listening now. Why? One of the things that I was amazed about when I was in Russia, this church that uh, held this conference that, that I taught at, about 235, 245 people. And uh, the morning of the Sunday, we got in really early Sunday morning and we had to preach Sunday morning. I got in, we got in a train about 6.30 in the morning and we had to preach at uh, 9.15 or something, I don't remember. Um, and so I was... I was praying and kind of going through my scriptures and what I was going to preach and all the rest of it. And I looked outside. This is a big, fairly good-sized church. And I looked, and there's four cars in the parking lot. Four cars in the parking lot. And I go over. They have a time of prayer before their message. Uh, and so we went, went to the, meet the guys in the, in the message. And I could look out in the parking lot, and to my stunning surprise, a fifth car showed up. Uh, wow, that's pretty cool. And these are cars, and I'm talking little bitty cars. The biggest one there was a Volkswagen Passat. I looked out into the auditorium, and it's packed. The main floor in the balcony is packed. You know what that means? They walked. 
they walked. And Valeria says, I need you to pray for us. I said, why that? He says, we're having trouble with our Wednesday night prayer. We have a time of teaching and choir practice on Wednesday night, but we like to take an hour to hour and a half to two hours to pray. And he says, I need you to pray for our fellowship. He gave me a little coffee cup with the church thing on it. And he says, when you look at this coffee cup, would you pray for us? And he specifically, I would like for you to pray for us on our, our Wednesday nights of prayer. And I said, what would you have me pray? He says, we only get 175 people to pray. Only 175 people to pray. Bummer. You need more cars. Why? Because if we have more cars, then it's easier to get to church, isn't it? I read a magazine a few weeks ago, Time Magazine, the 25 most influential Christians, evangelicals in the world. Okay? You know what they were all based on? Money. How big was their ministry? That's what it was. How much money did they have? You know what you do when you do that, step into that venue? You profane God's name. You know, it's, it's like one of the reasons that the Lord says to his people, you really can help a lot if you would just cool it with the sinning. Because then I don't have to chasten you. And, and in the world won't have to look at you and say, well, what's up with this guy? What's up with this person? What's up with this ministry? He says, I have enough problems with the rest of the world. If you just shape up, I could bless your lives and the world would be sitting there going, wow, check that out. You see it again in Numbers um, chapter 14, verse 15. This is wonderful Israel. They've kind of gotten carried away with the calf and they're wanting to kind of worship God their own direction and all the rest of it. And verse 15 says, what has happened in verse 11, Moses is pleading to save Israel. God has is, is, had it. He's just flat out had it. He's, he's tired. I brought you out of Egypt. I, I did what you couldn't do. You were slaves in bondage. There's no way you could have got out of this thing on your own. I brought you out. I parted the Red Seas. I've killed Pharaoh's army. And I'm feeding you and I'm putting a cloud so when you're walking around during the day you don't roast. And all I'm asking you to do is obey my law. And you guys are making calves and you're grumbling and you're complaining and all the rest of it. And I've had it. So he tells Moses, I'm done. Here's Moses. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. All right, so you you, you get the picture there. God's fed up. Verse 15, Moses says, now if you slay this people as one man, you know what that means, right? When you kill one person, how dead are they? They're all dead. So what he's saying is, if you kill this whole nation as one man... Okay, then the nations who hear of your, your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring his people out of the land which he had promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. See, God, if you slaughter Israel out here in the wilderness, all the nations are going to say, you, you couldn't pull it off. You could get them out of Pharaoh's hand, but you couldn't get them into the promised land. So Moses got a line there. I like that line. I mean, Moses is thinking about it. He's manipulating God. God, you don't want the lost people to think 
You're not powerful, are you? You don't want to think that them Israelites have more power than you and you just couldn't get them across that desert stretch. You don't want them to think that way, do you? That's Moses' prayer. Why? They've been complaining. Moses had even spent 40 days and nights continually praying for Israel. 40 days and nights. You know what God did? He pulled back. He withdrew his hand of judgment on him in Deuteronomy 9, verse 23 through 28. <clears throat> Moses sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up, possess the land which I give you. Then you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. So I fell down before the Lord for 40 days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness of their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say... Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he had promised them. And because he had hated them, he had brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Why did God redeem you, people? Why did Jesus Christ hang on a cross for you, people? That you may know the Lord your God. And that you would be a testimony to who he is and what he is doing. You would show in your life the character of God. See, God does not desire his name to be profaned. He withheld his hand. But I want you to think about something, Mary. There were 3,000 killed by the Levites. Okay? But I want you to think about something very serious. Because I see a lot of people, King James says, God repented. And he changed his mind. Did he really? How many of that nation went into the promised land? See, God says, I will not have my name profaned. I will not allow you to profane my name. And when it's all said and done, guess what? I'm going to get the glory anyway. And that's how he did it. If you go back to Ezekiel um, 39... I can't find Ezekiel. There it is. 39th chapter, again, this is him prophesying. This is his, the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is when he comes against Gog and Magog. Okay, You know what Gog and Magog do, right? They claim that they can overthrow God and destroy God's people. And God says, <laughs> right, he doesn't laugh. And that's, there's not a snickering. Uh, he goes out and destroys them. Anyway, in verse 7, he says, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am Lord and the Holy One of Israel. That's coming. That's coming. He said, I'm tired of publicity. See, the people can profane, people can profane God, or you can glorify God. Now, I want to give you a footnote here because I don't want you running out of here uh, thinking wrong. Uh, In case you think, if you pray like Moses, 
you can kind of get out of things. You know, maybe I'm even willing to sacrifice 40 days. Maybe if I cry a lot, that, you know, God, you know, God will say that nations will speak bad because of how I'm acting and, and things like that. Um, people will think God is mean if I'm crying and, and God's not answering my prayers or, um, you know. And, and, you know, he just shared with me he's going to protect his name. So, you know, I'm one of his children, and I kind of fool around a lot, and I get myself in trouble, but I'll, I'll do 40 days of prayer even if I have to and say, God, that's okay. Um, I, I'll just give you a heads up on that one, all right? Uh, Jeremiah tried that. <laughs> okay? You go to Jeremiah 14. I can't find mine. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 14. I, I like Jeremiah a lot because he had to do it, and I hope prayed I never have to. Verse 7, although your iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Sound familiar? Jeremiah's warning them. You know, God's getting ready to judge here, but now, so Jeremiah's trying to get involved and try to save Israel, and he says, you know, for your name's sake. Truly, our apostasies are many, and we have sinned against you. Okay, so now he's, he's repentant before him and he's confessing sins before him. See, I've seen people do that. If I confess my sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive me my sins. All right? Oh, hope of Israel. See there? Lift up that name, holy name of God. Oh, hope of Israel. It's Savior in time of distress. Right? Or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night. Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Yet you are in our midst, O Lord, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. So see what he's doing? He's doing the Moses trick. Thus says the Lord to his people. Okay, so God answers Jeremiah. Even so, they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them now. He will remember their iniquity and he will call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Take that text right there, lay it right on top of 1 John where it says, the sin that leads to death. We're always, what is the sin? What is the sin? It's not the issue. It says that that brother or sister who has a non-repentant sin, you are to cease to pray for them. God told Jeremiah, stop praying for him. Well, that sounds awful. It does, doesn't it? But what does God say? It's the sake of my holy name. The sake of my holy name. I'm just going to... See, God understands. Many are not going to understand it. Many have lost people. You know what? Many in the evangelical circles are not going to understand it today. We believe here in America today... We believe that this church is blessed or that church is blessed based on what? Well, they've got three morning services and 12 afternoon services and a contemporary and a blended and a traditional and they got this. They got Awanas. They got I want Awana. They got little kids. They got big kids. They got this ministry. They got that ministry. So it's got to be of 
God, doesn't it? You know what you just said? If you step into that mindset, do you know what you just said? Jesus was a failure. Jesus picked 12. One betrayed him. One verbally denied him. And the other 10, we ain't got a clue where they went. You're saying that what Jeremiah did was ineffective. You're saying what Isaiah did had no meaning whatsoever. You're saying what Daniel did was useless. You're saying what Joel did was a waste of time because they didn't have the numbers, they didn't have the buildings, and where are the ministries? What did you just do? Listen, I've seen some of the most powerful Christians I ever witnessed in my life. I went over there thinking that I was going to give all this theology to these guys and these ladies. Was I mistaken? I mean, I had a lot of dots to connect, but these people have a handle on theology. I went into their church, and I was down in the fellowship hall in the basement of this church, and I looked in these corner rooms. There was about three little corner rooms, little dinky rooms, and they had these big feather beds with these really cool quilts on it. And I thought, if I can get a picture of this, my wife's going to eat this quilt up. But I, I did like this, and I said... What's those beds for? And Valeri looks at me and smiles. He says, you are the man of this book. Is not the church supposed to take care of the widows? The widows sleep there. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. Where's the orphans? <laughs> well, and he says, and they keep the church. They clean the church. That's what the book says. Who gets the glory? God does. God does. I mean, I'm supposed to pray for them because 230 members in the church and they can only get 175 to come and pray. How about a drag? No wonder you're so ineffective. Do you see what we're getting at? Look at what we've done. Do we profane his name? You know what? Many will look at the church today and they say it looks just like a business. And you know what? They're right. It does. But here's the problem. How many who go to this corporation to worship are bypassing his justice? You know, that's why the world is saying, if if God is so strong, why doesn't he eliminate trouble? Why doesn't he stop war? Why doesn't he solve all the problems? Why doesn't he cure disease? Why doesn't the person who wants a baby have a baby? The person who doesn't want to have a baby doesn't have a baby. Why doesn't God take care of all of this? I mean, you say he spoke and existence started. Show me something here. Because you know what? God says the wages of sin is death. God said in this world you will have tribulation. Paul said you walk in his righteousness, you will be persecuted. We forget those, right? We forget those. God is saying to us, God is saying to Christians, you can sure help a lot if you just make sure your life isn't a reproach to me. 
God has said to Israel through Paul, Romans 4, 24, because of you, my name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. It's awful. Think about it. You can even, in a Christian's life, because of the life you live, God's name can be blasphemed. Whatever you do in your life, whose glory is it? Let me give you a couple of quick New Testament pictures of this. Um, <laughs> sorry, but these are the only two that I could find, three I could find, so you'll have to bear with me. Uh, it's nothing personal, all right? One is out of Second, First Timothy chapter uh, 5, verse 14. <laughs> he says this. Well, he, he begins in verse 9. A widow is to only be put on a list if she is not less than 60 years old because she has to be over 60 years old and having the wife of one husband, meaning that you know, she has, her husband has died, and having a reputation in good works, and if she has brought up children, and, and she doesn't have any other people around there. Okay? Then he gets, starts dealing with younger widows. Young, young women. He says, therefore, I want the younger women, widows, to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for what? Reproach. Don't. He's saying, young widowed women, I want you to remarry so that the enemy doesn't have a foothold for what? For reproach. To who? To God. I don't want you to do anything that casts a reproach on it. If you do not get married, young women, look at see, look at verse eleven. But refuse to put a younger woman on the list. Okay, the list means the women who got to sleep in the basement of Valeri's church. Okay? He says, refuse to put the younger women on it, for when they feel what? Sensual desires. Do you, he's not talking about he's talking about your senses. Your senses. You know how... Ooh, I almost said it. I'm not going to say that. You know how occasionally we can have the flutter thing? Huh? I've got the flutter thing in my heart. Okay? If a woman has been widowed and she's a young woman, what will keep her from having that flutter thing? And how do you know that that doesn't open it up? For what? If the woman starts following her senses. Hey, listen, ask yourself a question. How many times have you got yourself in the proverbial pickle barrel because you were making decisions based on emotion? None of us are immune from that. None of us. I did it last Saturday. Okay? I did. I flew back in. had been on an airplane way longer. And the whole plane, except for the woman sitting next to me, was German. Okay? Now listen, I was on a jumbo jet. I was on a 747-400. So we're talking, I was with a whole bunch of Germans. Okay? And these people are grouchy. I mean, some of the most cantankerous people I've ever run into in my life. And they were all mad because they have to fill out a declaration to get back into the country. And they're all mad because they're doing it and they're going to miss their connecting flights and all this. And I was like, your airport kept us two hours late. Or we'd have been on time. And you're telling me it was windy in Frankfurt. We got a jumbo jet. Was it a hurricane? No, it was a wind. But anyway, so I'm flying 10 hours with these cranky Germans. So when I get there, I miss my connecting flight. 
So they, you got to go through customs. You got to go through and declare it. It's just this big hassle. You go through all this stuff, and they get out, and they said, you know, who had connecting flights in here? And said, well, you go catch United, and I was supposed to catch a plane down to Colorado Springs. Okay, and here you got these brunt and brunt and trying to get their bags and rah, rah, and, and, and just and they're, you know they're cussing in some foreign language and I don't interpret. And I was just sitting there going, Lord, it's just been such a blessed time that I've had. And I was standing there in line and getting bumped and getting this. And, and all of a sudden I got all my bags again. I got to retake my bags into an airplane thing again. And I'm sitting there just getting ready to slap somebody. I want to start World War III because I believe we can whip the Germans a third time. <laughs> I know why they get whooped. I think that they need to be whooped about every 40 years. Because that might change their disposition. Anyway, I get up there and I'm getting this pushing and they're yelling and screaming and all this. And these, these poor ticket ladies. So I decide, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call my wife and tell her to come and get me in Denver. And I ain't getting on another airplane with a bunch of Germans. So I walk out. I go out in the hall. I push a little phone card thing. I call her. She ain't got her cell phone with her. So I leave her a message on her cell phone. So I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I call back again. She still ain't got it. I call back again. She still ain't got it. So I said, you know what? My niece doesn't live that far away. I'll call her. Come get me, Amanda. She comes and gets me, takes me home. About 9 o'clock. I'm at home now. About 7 o'clock. My wife ain't there. About 9.30, I get this collect call from Colorado Springs Airport. And I answer the phone. Hello? Is that you? Yes. I'll be home in about an hour. <laughs> okay? I made a decision based on an emotion. If I just got on the airplane, kept my big old pie hole shut, quit thinking it, quit worrying about the Germans, because the Germans were probably all going to Vegas anyway. Germans just don't go to Colorado Springs. Okay, so I'd have probably got on an airplane with a bunch of American-speaking people, and I'd have been fine. All right? That was one twist in my trip. All right? Why? Because I let my emotions do what? Make a decision. And, you know, and I can use all the excuses. Well, I'd all been up for like 32 hours. Okay? And I've seen The Incredibles, the movie, so many times now. I know it verbatim. You know what else I know? I know it in German. Because you can listen to it in German or you can listen to it in English. So the third time through, I decided I'd watch it in German. <laughs> all right? Why? He's saying, women... Verse 11, he says, Women, sensual desires are in disregard of Christ and they want to get married. What happens? They will all of a sudden during the course of this, I want to be a widow. I'm going to be taking care of the church. All of a sudden they're going to run into the other Mr. Right. And they're going to do what? Fall into disgrace. Let me show you another one here. Chapter 6, verse 1. All who under a yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as what? That's a nasty verse right there. I, I, verse 1, I just give anything if that bugger was not in the Bible. Um, all who are under a yoke as slaves. You know what that means, right? You're pulling somebody else's plow. Okay? It'll give you a better picture. As slaves are to regard their own masters as what? Worthy of what? All honor. Well, you don't know my boss, but you ain't read the rest of this verse. Because he says, I want you to do this so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be what? A reproach spoken against. I want you to be the best employee that the world has ever seen. Why? So that God's name isn't reproached. 
Look at Titus chapter 2 verse 5. I'm I'm not really picking on people, I promise. Okay? Verse 3, he begins with older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, da-da-da. That would be the prayer chain people. Okay? Verse 4 says, so that they may encourage what? The young, young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible and pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? What does it say there? So you don't disgrace God. Because I just showed you what happens when you profane His name. You can either glorify God or you can glorify God. One, you glorify Him because of the redeemed life or you glorify Him because of your ruin. He's literally saying here that you need to be in a position that God is honored. So that God is not blasphemed. A a wife that doesn't live the way she should brings shame to the Lord. She brings shame to the God she claims she loves. I'm not going to let everybody off the hook here. This is for my sons. Being I've got both of them here, this works very well. Thank you, Father. All right. It says here, young men, verse 8, sound speech is is... is beyond, which is beyond reproach. You know what that means? Sometimes, young men, shut up. Why? Be of sound speech. It says, verse 6, Likewise, we urge young men to be what? Sensible in all things. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with impurity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech. You know what that means, sound in speech? It is a stable speech. It doesn't tear people down. Which is, be, is beyond reproach. Why? Because if you don't do this, guess what happens? You're not beyond reproach. So that the opponent... Who's our opponent? So our opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say against us. The accuser of the brethren have nothing to accuse us of. There we are. We have two options in our life. Glorify God or profane Him. That's what 1 Corinthians 10, 31 is telling us. In your freedom, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You know what's cool about this statement? It's written in the original language. It's not a suggestion. It is written as a command. We must glorify God in using our freedom. The freedom we have in Christ to do the things in the area that the Bible hasn't hasn't spoken of. Ask yourself a simple question. Is what I'm doing glorifying God? It shows that the household, it shows the workplace, it shows the relationship between parents and children. Okay? Do all for the glory of God. How? The wisdom of our freedom, the why of our freedom, and the way of our freedom. We'll touch those next week. Let's pray. Father, I love you. I praise you for what you've done. I praise you for this text. And Lord, I just pray that we understand our freedom. But Father, we also understand the responsibility each of us have not to profane you. Father, let our lives be glorious to you. Let our lives only bring honor and adoration unto you. May the lost see us.
in your glory. Father, may you do immeasurably more than we could ever think or imagine. Father, we give it to you now. Father, I know that I can make no one believe your word. I can change no one. Father, I beg your spirit. Help my brothers and my sister and me to walk according to this personal holiness. That, Father, that we may impact many, many for your kingdom. Father, be glorified in me. Be glorified in these precious souls. Be glorified in your church. Father, let us flee anything that would be a reproach to you and you alone, my Savior, in Christ's name.